I think if you're reasonable, uh, I think you have to admit that the Christmas story is a great story because it has everything in it as a story that can take a good story and make it great. There's a, there's a great plot to the Christmas story. Now, it's important to remember it is a story, and it's part of a grander story that the Scriptures are telling. But nonetheless, the Christmas story is a great story and an important story with a great plot. And the plot of the Christmas story is filled with a multitude of different narratives. There's the, the narrative that's connected to Zechariah and Elizabeth that we talked about last week, the parents of John the Baptist. And, and so there, there's that storyline. And then there's, you know, the shepherds and why the shepherds in the first century, why they had been excommunicated from the religious establishment. And so their presence in the Christmas story has significance. And once we understand that narrative, that, that begins to make more sense. And then there's the magi, the wise, the wise men that showed up from the east. And that story goes all the way back hundreds of years to Babylon and Daniel, the prophet. And that's an intriguing narrative. And then there's narratives connected to Bethlehem because Bethlehem had a a story past in Jerusalem and and there's Mary and there's Joseph and all of these different narratives, they converge upon one another in order to put together the entire Christmas story. And each narrative brings a depth and a richness to the Christmas story that otherwise it wouldn't have. So there's, there's just a great plot line to the Christmas story. And then on top of that, there's great characters and, you know, many of us were familiar uh, with the characters of Christmas because at some point or the other, you know, Sunday school or growing up in the church or, you know, we've just picked it up along the way through movies or through songs. And, you know, it's full of great characters. But the thing that really sticks out to me about the characters of the Christmas story is the fact that it keeps it grounded in reality. Yes, there is the divine factor. There is this activity of God and there's the miraculous and there's angelic visitation and and there's all of that stuff going on. But in the midst of all of that supernatural activity, there are the characters of the Christmas story, which I think keep the story anchored to reality because these are very real people living at a very real specific time in human history. And I think that when we thoughtfully read the Christmas story and carefully read the Christmas story, I think we will begin to see our humanity in their humanity. I think we will recognize things about us in them and we will find parts of our story that helps us connect with parts of their story because it's the human element of the Christmas story in the midst of everything else going on. It is the human element of the Christmas story which makes the Christmas story a messy story. As I said last week, it's a messy story about messy people for messy people because life is seldom neat and clean when us humans get involved. When we get involved, things tend not to be very neat and very clean for very long. And so it's the human element of the Christmas story, which brings the tension and it brings the emotion to the story, which every great story must have. So whether it's the plot or whether it's the characters, uh, the thing that we realize in the Christmas story is there's much for us to learn. Uh, when we think of the Christmas story often, we just think of the story we tell one, one time a year. But within that story that unfortunately we only really think about one time a year, within that story, There is so much for us to learn about God, and there's so much for us to learn about life. We learn about how to respond to God, and we learn how to respond to life. And then we learn how not to confuse one with the other. As Philip Yancey wrote, we don't don't confuse God with life, and we don't confuse life with God, lest we become disillusioned, disappointed, and discontented with both. So we learn that God is not life and life is not God. And you know, God is here and we experience life and, and the Christmas story teaches us about how to respond 
to both. Now, as the story opens up in the gospels of Matthew and also Luke, as the story opens up, we find these real people living at a real time in human history, first century Palestine. And we find a group of people that we see some things in their life that we recognize from our own because as the pages open up, we find a group of people who were busy. And if you know anything about the first century, if you know anything about first century Palestine, first century that part of the world, first century Roman occupation, first century the Jewish people, they were busy trying to survive. Now, we are all, or many of us are busy trying to thrive. That's, that's a Western mindset. That's American exceptionalism. You know, over here in the West, you know, we're, we're beyond just trying to survive. Most times we're thinking about how to, how to thrive. But in first century Palestine, people had to work hard just to survive. So they were busy surviving. Uh, they were busy trying to manage, you know, all the things that they had in their life. They were busy raising kids, some of them, like you. They were busy trying to fulfill their responsibilities as sons and daughters and as employees and part of a greater community. They were busy working, uh, perhaps busy trying to figure out life like some of us, you know, try to think about from time to time. We try to figure things out. They, they were busy trying to just keep up, uh, you know, just trying to keep up with life, just trying to keep ahead. And they were just busy living life. That's what they were doing. When the pages open up, they were busy living their life. And like you and like me, they had hopes and they had dreams and they had plans, right? I mean, somewhere as a kid, somewhere in your teenage years, young adult years, you started dreaming about your future. You started having a vision of your future. You started having hopes for the future. And, and maybe your parents feel that, maybe another adult feel that, maybe a friend feel that, but you began to hope, hey, this is what I think, this is what I dream my future to look like. You know, I'm gonna go to this school, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna get this job, and this is kinda how I see it shaking out. I'm gonna get married, gonna have some kids, or not gonna get married, I'm gonna have any kids. You know, I'm gonna travel a lot. You know, I, I think I'm gonna try to retire early, or I don't think I'll ever retire, but I just want a job. You know, you got all these hopes hopes and dreams. And then you start trying to put plans to the hopes and dreams. You, you try to find a strategy. You try to, you know, find a path that will lead you towards where you think you're going in life, how you vision your life going. Well, that's what they were doing because, you know, when we think about the first century, you know, characters of the Christmas story, I think sometimes we think about a bunch of people, you know, and we picture them as plowing with sticks and some people who were just ignorant and, and, you know, so different than we are. And they were different. They were living in a different world than we can even relate to. But yet, like us, there's some things, as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. And the same issues in your life and the same experiences in your life, you can trace back and find present in every generation of human history. Just different names, you know, and the details are just a bit different, but there's really nothing new under the sun. And so you find a group of people who were busy, Busy living life, busy trying to make their hopes and dreams and plans come to pass. When all of a sudden, something happened, something unplanned, something unforeseen, something unwanted, something unexpected. They experienced what I wanna call an interruption. An interruption, an interruption is just when the continuity of things get broken. When the continuity of your life or the continuity of my life, where it gets broken, where there's a bent, there's a, there's a kink that gets in there and the continuity of life is just upset. And then all of a sudden you're forced to deviate. You're forced to deviate from your plan. 
You're forced to deviate from your expectations. You know, you, you're going on a trip, you've got a destination and, and you've got the plan of how to get there. Your GPS has lined it all out. And then all of a sudden, somewhere three hours into the journey, you find out there's a wreck, there's something going on on the interstate. And all of a sudden you have to deviate. You have to take a detour, you have to find another route. What you thought was going to be is not going to be. The way you thought you were going is no longer the way that you're actually going to be going. There was an interruption to your plan. There was an interruption to how you expected things to turn out. Now, some of you, some of us, many of us, we've already experienced this in life, right? Some of you, it was that once upon a time when you lost your job and you never expected that you would be the person to get fired, to get let go, that the corporation decided to do away with your spot. And so all of a sudden, you thought somebody else was gonna get the pink slip, but you got the pink slip and you didn't even know where to start. You didn't even know where to go from that point. And it was an interruption and it felt like an ending. It was just, it was just a horrible break in the continuity of things. For some of you, it was, it was the death of someone you loved with all of your heart. It was a son or as a daughter, and it was a, a spouse who was taken before their time. It was a friend, it was a sister or a brother, and, and it was a tragic, tragic interruption, a painful interruption. And in that moment, there was nothing worse than that interruption, the way it played out, the way it took place. For some of you, it was that car accident that changed everything. It just, there were so many things that happened as a result of that, and it just changed everything. Or maybe it was a chronic illness that you didn't ever expect to be diagnosed with, and it's not gonna kill you, but it's robbed you of the quality of life that you suspected that you would have, and now you're having to deal with challenges and think about things that you never thought that you'd have to think about at your age. It was the prodigal son, the prodigal daughter that you raised them in church and you took them to student group and you've tried to you know, be a good example, but you just never saw their choices coming. And you just never expected that your son would end up with that struggle or your daughter would end up in that situation with that habit. And all of a sudden it was just a break in the continuity of things and everything has changed subsequent to that event. And then if, if there's nothing else that we can relate to, I think we can all relate to 2020. I think 2020 has been an interruption. It has been a break in the continuity of the way that we are used to doing things, the way that we like to do things as individuals, as families, even as a church. Uh, my family, uh, my cousin uh, just got engaged and her, her fiance, his name's Trevor. So our family's getting uh, another Trevor. And you know, that makes holidays really confusing. Trevor, I'm, I'm used to being the only one. I can't imagine another reality where I'm not the only Trevor uh, around. And so, you know, now I've got to figure out, okay, who are you talking to? And so Trevor, uh, they attend church here uh, when they're able to get here. And a few weeks ago, we were just outside the door there in the lobby of our London campus. And he said, you know what? He said, you know, you might just be a prophet. And I'm like, well, all right. I kind of like the way it sounds. Tell me more. And he said, do you remember this time last year, you looked at the church and you said, I believe with all of my heart, 2020 is going to be unbelievable. <laughs> I said, I do remember that. So now I want to remind you, I tried to prepare you people for this, but you wouldn't listen. We decided, you know, as a church, we were, we were on our way to launching a fourth campus in 2020. And there was an interruption. We had to pause that. For some of you, this whole school situation, 
you know, not being able to go to school and, you know, this thing called virtual learning, which I think the book of the Revelation refers to as the tribulation. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure the sixth seal got broke and tribulation just burst out in, in families with children. And, you know, that's going so well for so many people and everybody's very happy about that. And um, so, you know, there's that. And then for some of you, you know, there's mom and dad both working or a single parent and you didn't have the margin for the extra childcare. And it's like, okay, the people making these decisions, they apparently don't care about me. So now what am I gonna do? I, if I go to work, do I leave my kid? Do I have to find a babysitter? And do you know how expensive that's gonna be? And besides that, the mental health of my child, I'm worried about that. And it's been a real interruption. I mean, it's, it's something that's upset the continuity of things. And, and here's the thing, when it comes to interruptions, they almost always happen when we don't expect it. Here's a question to think about. How do you expect the unexpected? It's impossible because if you expect the unexpected, the unexpected becomes what? Expected. You can't expect the unexpected, the same thing, you can't plan for the unplanned because if you plan for the unplanned, it's now no longer unplanned. How do you see the unforeseen? You can't because if you see the unforeseen, it's been seen. So you can, you can navigate, you can begin to respond, you can begin to plan. It's difficult, it's nearly impossible to plan for interruptions. It's nearly impossible to plan for any potentiality that may happen in life. It's impossible to insulate my life and your life from interruptions. It's just the way it is. It is the nature of life. Sometimes life turns out the way that we didn't expect it. Sometimes life turns out the way we don't want it. And sometimes there's nothing at all that we can do about it. So here's the question. What do we do when the unplanned, unwanted, unexpected, unforeseen, what do we do when it happens in our life? What do we do when life's turned up on its head? What do we do when things, you know, the way we expected, our dreams, our vision of the future, what happens when none of that turns out the way that we thought it was going to turn out? What then? When life doesn't end up looking the way you wanted it to, when, when you have to go off script, when you have to call an audible and you have to take a detour and all of your plans unravel and you can't control the outcomes that are going on around you, what then? What then? That's the question. What then? What do you do then? How will you respond? Will you move forward, move back, stand still? What then? How do you handle those moments? When you have an interruption in life, because the question is not, will you have an interruption or will I have an interruption in life? The question is, what will I do then when I have an interruption in my life? Because there will be a day when interruption knocks at the door and there will be times when interruptions don't even knock at the door, they just burst the door down and they come on in and they take a seat at the table of your life. What then? The follow-up to that is, that helps us answer that question is, what if? How we respond then may be connected to what if. What if the unexpected, what if the unplanned, the unforeseen, the unwanted, what if it's actually not an ending? What if it's actually the beginning of something? What if it's not exactly what we think it is? And even though the continuity of things have been broken, what if it's not the end of things? What if, here's a question, what if God, what if God can use an interruption to become an introduction to the next big thing he wants to do in and through your life? What if? 
Because if that's true, if God can turn an interruption into an introduction to the next big thing that he wants to do in your life and through your life, it helps us know how to respond to the interruption. And we see this happening all throughout scripture. Abraham, Abraham minding his own, his own business in Ur, and all of a sudden God comes and says, hey, I want you to leave your family, I want you to leave your city, and I want you to go to a place that I'll tell you, you know, later on when you get close. It was an interruption, and it felt like the ending. I want you to leave everything that is normal for you. I want you to leave everything that you're comfortable with, and I want you to go to a place that I'll show you later on, but I'm not gonna tell you in the beginning. And it felt like the end of something, but for Abraham and for the world, it was actually the beginning of something big. Moses on the backside of the Midian Desert, 40 years he's been over there taking care of his father-in-law's sheep, and he's got a plan, he's got a vision, he's, he's, got, he's got an idea of what the rest of his life's gonna look like, and then all of a sudden out there one day, minding his own business, there's a bush that's on fire, and he walks over there to it, and God speaks to him. And it was an interruption, and the rest of his life is going to change dramatically. He didn't look for that, he wasn't asking for that, it was unplanned and unforeseen. Gideon. Hiding from the Midianites, the enemy. He's hiding in the wine press. The same Gideon that's gonna take 300 and defeat the Midianites against all odds. But when we first meet him, he's down there hiding in the wine press until he has a divine encounter. And all of a sudden, it was an interruption that changed the trajectory of Gideon's life. David, taking care of his dad's sheep. And they yell at him, hey, Dave, come inside. There's a prophet here who says he needs to see you. And that night, he's anointed to be king of Israel. It was an interruption. It changed everything. Ruth lost her husband, became a widow, went through a famine. Then she got remarried and became one of the great, 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 great grandmothers of Jesus. That season of her life felt like an interruption, an ending, but it was actually just the beginning of something. Joseph, he had a tragic, violent, horrible interruption when it came to his brothers and his family. It was the end of something, but yet it was the beginning of something even greater. And we see this over and over and over and over again in the scriptures. And we also see it in the Christmas story, specifically with Mary and Joseph. Now, Mary and Joseph are so clean and so sanitized. And when we think about little Mary and Joseph, you know, we just have this picture that comes in our mind and we forget about their humanity. We forget that they're like us, that, that like human beings of all time and space, we have some very predictable ways that we respond to things. And, and Mary and Joseph have become way too neat and way too clean for the Christmas story because when we're introduced to them, they have hopes and dreams and plans. They're engaged, right? You remember when you got engaged and you, know, you started thinking about the future and even before you got engaged, you're thinking about the future. This is what our life's gonna look like and th this is how we kind of see it taking place. We're gonna grow old together and we're gonna do this with kids and then we're gonna travel and we're gonna do all this. They got plans, right? They, they know what this looks like in their culture. So you know, they, they just don't wanna be like everybody else. There's that something in us that we wanna do a little bit better and we wanna do a little bit different. So they've kind of got plans and they've kind of got an idea of what they want the rest of their lives to look like. And then the Christmas story begins to take place. Now, they don't know they're in what we call the Christmas story. They were just living life. But what we call the Christmas story, they experienced as an interruption, an interruption to their plans, to their hopes, and to their dreams. And Mary and Joseph, they have a lot to teach us about how to respond to God in the midst of an interruption, how to respond to the interruption itself, and how to respond to life when life happens. They teach us a lot about faith. 
And so this is where the story begins in Luke. He says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, we talked about that last week, six months earlier, the, Gabriel, you know, the angel Gabriel appeared to Zachariah, Elizabeth's husband, said, hey, you're all gonna have a son. They're gonna be the parents of John the Baptist. So now this is six months later. She's six months pregnant. God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. And what's interesting about this is that for 500 years, there had been no angelic visitations in Israel. There had been 400 years where God hadn't said a word. So for 500 years, Gabriel and some other angels are up there just twiddling their thumbs saying, okay, um, <laughs> we're a little bored here. And, and, and then finally God looks at Gabriel and says, I need you to go see a priest in Jerusalem. His name's Zechariah and his, him and his wife are pretty old. Go tell him they're gonna have a son. He's gonna name John, John and he's gonna be a big deal. Okay, I'll, I'll take care of that. Six months later, you know, God looks over, this is not in the Bible, but I just imagine, imagine it this way. Looks over, you know, at Gabriel again and says, hey, Gabriel, I need you to go. It's time. Christmas is about to happen. I'm gonna keep my promise. Jesus is about to be born. So I need you to go to Nazareth to talk to somebody. And Gabriel's like, where? And God says, Nazareth. He's not Nazareth. You mean Jerusalem, don't you? No, I said Nazareth. Because Nazareth in the first century was the wrong side of the tracks. That was the place you didn't wanna be from and you probably fudged a little bit on your resume if they ask you where you were from because you didn't want anybody to know that you were from Nazareth. Everybody looked down on the people from Nazareth because that whole area of Galilee had such a Gentile influence that the people down in Jerusalem, the religious aristocracy, you know, the godly, the religious, they kind of looked down on those people to say, you know what? <laughs> They're kind of worldly up there. And, and if God's gonna do something big, the last place they would expect God to do something big would be Nazareth. And so what does God do? God's gonna do something big and it's gonna start in Nazareth. And he steps outside the religious circles and he goes to Nazareth and he sends Gabriel to meet with a teenage girl. It says, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David, important part of the story. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, every good Jewish person knew from the time that they were old enough to comprehend that the Messiah, the Savior, the King that was to come, he was gonna be a descendant of Abraham, and he was gonna be out of the house and the lineage of David. That he was gonna come from Abraham, and he was gonna come out of the line of David. Now, Luke is writing a biography. He's writing a gospel. So he's writing a story that has a point to it. So he's making a case that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah and Jesus is the savior of the world. And so Luke, he's a medical doctor, he's a man of science, he's left brain linear, but yet he writes with such a prolific ability. I mean, he writes, and when you take his whole biography into account, the subtleties of Luke's writing are just striking because he drops these little things in there because he's making the case for Jesus. So he tells us, hey, Joseph, he's a descendant of David. So check that Jesus fits all the credentials to be the Jewish Messiah. That's the point that he's gonna make. Now, what's also really interesting is this, that when the New Testament opens up, it opens up on the shoulders of the Old Testament. And to truly appreciate and understand the Christmas story, it's impossible to divorce it from the Old Testament. It's impossible to divorce it from the events and the narratives that came before it for thousands thousands of years. And so Luke alludes to basically the point of the Old Testament, which was God made a promise to Abraham and to David to one day send a savior, to send a king that would not only save Israel, but would save the world. And so he goes on, he says, the angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Doesn't that sound great? Now, when I read the scripture, uh, maybe I overthink things sometimes and, and sometimes I'll just stop and I'll just, I'll just think about that for a moment. 
And I'll think about how would that make me feel if I were Mary? If I could imagine first century Palestine, here's a first century woman living in first century Palestine who was looked at as property more than a human being. It would have never occurred to a male to look at a female in the first century as someone with equal dignity and worth. And that's so mind-blowing for us in the 21st century being part of the West, but that's the way that it was. Women weren't really educated. They weren't allowed to testify in court. They weren't considered trustworthy and, and they were just looked down on. And so for the angel to come from God to say, hey, Mary, the Lord is with you. I imagine, I don't know this for a fact, she may correct me one day, but I imagine that Mary didn't feel so much like the Lord was with her. She didn't feel it, right? Sometimes there's reality and sometimes we can't get our feelings to agree with reality. Sometimes what we feel is not reality at all. Now there's times when what's real also agrees with how we feel about it. But I imagine being her in that part of the world, in a world where you just had to almost fight to survive, it didn't really feel like the Lord was with you. Because if the Lord's with you, aren't things supposed to be a bit easier? If the Lord is with you, don't things fall into place a little better? When the Lord is with you, does your life really look like this? Does life, does it really have to be this hard? So I imagine that maybe her feelings said one thing, but faith was requiring her to believe another because that's the nature of faith. Sometimes faith and feelings have to part ways. It says Mary was greatly troubled or irritated, frustrated. It's just like a woman to get ticked at an angel, right? Some of you men, that's how you feel. You're the angel at home and there she is. She's ticked at, that, it, it happened. Just kidding, ladies. Mary is so greatly troubled. You know why? Because the angel scared the life out of her. You ever had somebody scare you? And you go from being like freaktastically fearful to just ticked off. You know, you're like, oh gosh, what'd you do that for? You know, and you just get mad because they scared you to death. And that's kind of, she's irritated now. She's like, what'd you do that for? And it says, and then she wondered at what kind of greeting this might be, which is an accounting term, which means she was trying to take thought and inventory of this. She was trying to add all this up and make it make sense in her head. So, you know, she's, she's trying to be thoughtful about this whole, this whole thing that's going on. And any reasonable person would feel the way she feels. She's kind of irritated, confused, but she's trying to think clearly in a moment where it's very difficult to think clearly. It says, but the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. Why? Because she's afraid. Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Now, here's a question. What comes to mind when you think about the favor of God? I don't know for you, but I think for a lot of Christians, when they think about the favor of God, they think, you know, hey, clear skies, easy sailing, wind at your back, minimal problems, little pain. And when we think favor of God, we're like, sign me up. If, if I can have the favor of God, walk in the favor of God, have the favor of God follow me, sign me up. But what if the favor of God doesn't look like what you necessarily think it looks like or feels like what you think it would feel like? This is angel telling Mary, Mary, there's something really cool about to happen here, but this is not because God is rewarding you for being good. This is an act of God's grace. This, this is what the angel's saying. This is, this is an act of grace. As Christians, we want to believe that God, you know, that God gives us little treats and God gives us little rewards. And when we're good, God, you know, slips us a little goodness over here. But when we're bad, you know, we expect a little spanking over here. But, but here's what the scriptures teach us. All is grace. It's not that when I do good, God rewards me because the scripture also says there's none good, no, not one. 
So we've got that to deal with. And we've all fallen short. And all that we have is grace. Any good thing in my life, any good thing in your life, it's grace. None of us deserve anything that we've received from our heavenly. It's all grace. It is all grace. And so he says, hey, what's about to happen to you, it's not because you've earned it. This is just God's grace in your life. And, and, and this is what it's going to look like. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you're to call his name Jesus. He's gonna be great. And he's gonna be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever and his kingdom will never end. She, she's heard this story her entire life. That God promised Abraham that one of his descendants would bless the whole world. God promised David that one of his sons would be a future king that would rule over a kingdom that would never end. And prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Micah and Malachi, they all chime in to say that when he becomes king, that the world will know peace like never before. They will take their swords and beat them into plowshares. They'll study war no more. And the glory of God will fill the earth like the ocean covering the land. And there will be righteousness and peace. And so they've heard about this entire life. And Mary's thinking, wow, yes, that's incredible. I know this, this is familiar to me, but she also can't get away from the reality of what the angel's saying because she's 13 or 14 years old. She knows biology. Her mama's talked to her. Her dad's talked to her. She's getting ready to get married, so she understands how nature works. And so she's thinking about this as any reasonable person would. She had questions. And she said, how will this be? How's this gonna happen? Tell me more. Now, this is really important. This isn't doubt. This is genuine curiosity. And I don't wanna bore you for the next two minutes, but I really, I think this is really important. I think it is worth the trip. It's worth watching today. Keep in mind that when Luke is writing the gospel of Luke, he is writing the gospel of Luke. This may be obvious, but, but think about it. He's writing this after the cross. He's writing this after the resurrection. He is writing an orderly account as he writes in the prologue, the first three verses of Luke. He says, I've investigated this. I've talked to eyewitnesses. And the goal of what I'm about to write is to give you an orderly, sequential, logical, rational presentation of the life and the ministry, the death and resurrection of Jesus so that you can weigh the evidence so that you can weigh the information and so you can draw your conclusion about whether you believe it to be true or whether you believe it to be a fabrication. So he's writing a story and he's introducing Jesus to the world and he's introducing this kingdom of God that's upside down. First gonna be last, last is gonna be first. All of this stuff about the kingdom of God. And he writes with a bit of parallelism. There's Gabriel who visits Mary, but before that, Gabriel appeared to Zechariah. And so it's almost as if Luke is showing, uh, showing us a bit of the contrast between a professional priest, a male, part of the religious aristocracy in Jerusalem, a good guy, we know that, a good guy, but not a perfect guy. But when he is visited by the angel, Gabriel, and Gabriel says, you and your wife, Elizabeth, you're gonna have a son in your own age and you're gonna call him John. In chapter one, verse 18, Zachariah responded and said, how can I be sure that this is gonna happen? How can I be sure that this is gonna happen? And it's a subtle difference between the language of what Mary used when she said, how will this be? Zachariah was, how can I be sure this will happen? The language of Zachariah's question or his statement was simply one of doubt or skepticism. 
Whereas Mary is asking from a sense where she's investigating, she's gathering information because that's what you do is you pursue faith. If you're here and you don't claim faith or if you're watching and you don't claim faith and you don't pursue information, then, then you're not really pursuing truth. Faith is what you find on the pursuit of truth. You gather information, you ask questions. She just doesn't believe it just because this angel, and even though it's an angel saying it, she just doesn't believe it. That's not what faith is. Faith is not believing blindly or ignorantly. It's belief based on information. It's belief based on evidence. That belief and trust and faith is a response to some information that you've encountered. It's a response to some evidence that you've evaluated. That's what's going on here. I love what Tim Keller, Tim Keller, he wrote about this. And, and this is really worth your trip. This is, this is what he said about this. He said, what we see is that the Bible's view of doubt is wonderfully nuanced. In many circles, skepticism and doubt are considered absolute unmitigated good. On the other hand, in a lot of conservative and religious circles, any and all questions or doubting is thought to be bad. If you're in a church youth group and you have questions about the Bible, the pastor may bark at you. You shouldn't doubt, you have to have faith. But what you have in the Bible is neither of those views. There is a kind of doubt, now listen to this, don't miss this. There is a kind of doubt that is the sign of a closed mind. And there is a kind of doubt that is the sign of an open mind. Some doubt seeks answers. And some doubt is a defense against the possibility of answers. I'm gonna read that one more time because that's big. Some doubt seeks answers. And some doubt is a defense against the possibility of answers. There are people like Mary who are open to the truth and are willing to relinquish sovereignty over their lives if they can be shown that the truth is other than what they thought. And there are those like Zachariah who use doubts as a way of staying in control of their lives and keeping their minds closed. And then he asks this question, which kind of doubt do you have? So I don't have any doubt. Well, then you don't have faith. So what are you talking about? The opposite of doubt is certainty. If you're certain, then you can't have faith. Faith is not certainty. We walk not by sight. Sight seems to indicate certainty. We walk by faith. We respond to evidence. We respond to information. There's always the presence of doubt in people who have faith. And there's doubt in people who don't have faith. The only question is, is it a doubt that's open to truth and answers or is it a doubt that's closed to truth and answers? That the only truth that we're open to is the truth that presupports what we want to be true. And so what Mary's teaching us is that faith is a process. It happens in stages. Rarely do people go from no faith to faith in a single step. It's usually a series of asking questions, reading, having conversations, thinking and reflecting. So. If you're here and you have some people in your life that you love and care about and they're not a person of faith, they don't follow Jesus, don't be discouraged. Don't give up because it's a journey. And it may be many steps before you see that person come to faith. It may be many conversations. It may be giving them many things to think about or to read. And if you're here or you're watching and you're not a person of faith, then keep on gathering information. Because if you stop gathering information, if you stop asking questions, it may be indicative of the fact that you're not really looking for truth. This is what we're learning about faith. This is what Mary's doing. And it says the angel answered. So she's gaining information. 
The Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born to you, will be called the Son of God. In other words, Mary, there's no precedent for this. (laughs) This isn't natural, you know this. This is supernatural, but Mary, think about this. The God who created the whole universe, the God who was the author and the designer of the cosmos, the God who flung the universe into existence and put in place the laws of thermodynamics, the law of physics, the laws of chemistry, the laws of nature, that God is going to step in and supersede, intervene on the laws that he put in place to do what he's about to do in your life. There's no precedent for this. This is a divine act, but this is what God is going to do nonetheless. And the angel says, well, even Elizabeth, your relative is gonna have a child in her old age. And she was said to be unable to conceive and she's in her sixth month. And then the angel puts it out there for no word from God will ever fail. Or some translations say there's nothing impossible for God. Imagine having that type of faith. Imagine waking up every day of your life and my life. Imagine what it would be like to wake up every day and believe there's nothing too difficult for God. That no word that God has spoken will fail. That no promise that God has made will he not keep. No promise of God will fail. Can you imagine just living your life with absolute confidence, not certainty, but absolute confidence that God could do anything that God was gonna keep all of his promises. Nothing is too hard for the God who created all things, sustains all things, and knows all things, and has all the power in all the world. Can you imagine having that type of faith? And so she gathers this information and listen to her response because that's what faith is. Faith is a response to who God is and what God says. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. In other words, not my will, but your will. This is Mary's faith. This is responding to an interruption. This is this moment where you say to God, God, it's not my plan, but if it's your plan, I'm gonna stop asking you to sign off on my plan and we're just gonna go with your plan. I'm gonna follow your plan. I'm gonna trust your plan. Mary's not dumb. She knows it's not gonna be easy. Can you imagine the difficult, awkward conversations that she has to have? Can you imagine the condescending looks that she's gonna be the recipient of? The rumors and the whispers? <laughs> she's gotta go talk to her mom and dad. Mom, dad, I gotta talk to you. I don't really know how to tell you this. I'm just gonna tell you, I'm, I'm pregnant. And the dad sits down. Tell me what jerk right now in Nazareth is responsible for this? Right now! I know you've not seen Joseph in a while. Who is it? And oh, dad, don't worry. It's not like that. No big deal. I was visited by an angel and God has put a baby in me and I, I'm a virgin and, and mom and dad are, she's your daughter. Talk to, you know, there's no doctor to call. There's, it's like, you know, can you imagine? And then she's got to talk to Joseph. And we know how well that went because Matthew records it. And this, this is that side of the story. So this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that. Matthew goes on and says, Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man. He was a good guy. And he did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. He couldn't believe it. What reasonable person would at that point? But we do know that he cared about her because he didn't want to embarrass her and he didn't want to endanger her. 
I mean, she could have been put to death for stepping outside of the engagement. I mean, that, that was a serious thing for a woman in the first century. This is not what Joseph signed up for. This is not what he expected. This was not part of his plan. This, this is an interruption to have his future bride pregnant and it's nothing to do because of him. How humiliating, how embarrassing. How do you walk around town with your head held high with that hanging over your shoulder? And it says, as he was considering this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, so he's get, getting new information. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid. Why? Because he's afraid. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit and she will have a son and your name is named Jesus and he will save his people from their sin. Okay? And then Joseph responds. And this is where we see his faith. And when Joseph woke up, he did. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded, and he took Mary, his wife, because he's responding to the information. He's responding to the evidence that he has, and he decides to trust God. It's not the story he would have written, but it's the story God's writing, and he wants to be a part of it. He knows it's gonna be anything but easy, but like Mary, they made a decision, a calculated decision, to believe that God could be trusted. Let's all just say that out loud together, God can be trusted. They decided that. And at some point in time, you and I will as well. We'll have to decide that God can be trusted in the middle of the interruption. When all the continuity is broken, when there is a roadblock on the path that we thought we were moving forward on. But we have to trust that God can take an interruption and make it an introduction to something good, to something big something important, something consequential. To trust that God is all powerful and all knowing, but he's also all good. And that lets me know that he can be trusted. I want my boys to be able to trust me. I really do. I, I want my boys to be able to trust me. I think every father wants their kids to be able to, to, trust, to trust him. Because when we have to step in and we have to say, no, it's this way. No, we're going here. We're not doing what you wanna do. We, we want our sons and daughters to trust us, to trust our hearts, to trust that we know better in that moment. And that's what our heavenly father, that's what he wants from us, for us to decide that he can be trusted right in the middle of when the bottom falls out. And that's what we see happening in this story. We learn in this story that faith isn't about getting rid of fear. It's about not giving into fear. That's the reason the angel had to say over and over again, fear not, fear not. And we need to hear, many of us need to hear, fear not, the Lord is with you. Why were some of the heroes of faith, why were so many of them, why did they have to hear the words, fear not, the Lord is with you? Because life is scary. Interruptions are scary. Trying to live is scary. The unplanned, unexpected, the uncontrollable, the unwanted, the unforeseen, it's scary. But he says, and maybe we need to hear it all over again, fear not, I am with you. And that's what he's saying to you. That's what he's saying to me right now. We may not feel like he's with us. We may not feel like we deserve for him to be with us, but he's saying, fear not, I am with you. 
In the middle of your storm, I am with you. In the midst of your darkness, I am with you. In your struggle, I am with you. In the failure that you have made things, I am with you. In the shrapnel that you have made a mess of things with, I am with you. I have always been with you. I will continue to be with you no matter what. And maybe, just maybe, some of you, some of us, maybe me, we need to be reminded that we don't have to be afraid. He is with us, whether we feel like it's true or not. We're reminded that faith is what keeps us walking when we're not even sure of where we're going. Abraham, leave home. Where are we going, God? I'm not gonna tell you. I'm not gonna give up. I'm not gonna give in. I'm not gonna check out. I'm not gonna walk away. I may have reasons to. But faith says, keep walking. Because this interruption, it's gonna be an introduction to something good and big that God's trying to do. So don't let an interruption in your life interrupt your faith. Don't let it make you bitter. Don't don't let it make you cynical or faithless or hopeless. Don't let it turn you sour. Don't let it turn you angry or hateful or resentful. Keep trusting, keep believing that no word of promise from God will ever fail. That when God says, I can take bad and turn it to good, you can take it to the bank, that's what's gonna happen. When the scriptures say that weeping may endure for the night, but joy's coming in the morning, you can count on it, that joy will show up in the morning. When it says that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them from them all, you can rest assured that's going to happen, that he makes everything beautiful in its own season, that when we're brokenhearted, he's nearby. When we've sinned, he's ready to forgive. He is faithful even when we are faithless. He is true even when we live lies. He is trustworthy. And we shouldn't let an interruption interrupt our faith because ultimately God turns interruptions from endings to beginnings. And this interruption for Mary and Joseph is the beginning of the greatest story that's ever been told. The story of man's rebellion against God and God chasing down his rebellious sons and daughters, not to pay us back, but to win us back. It is the story of God redeeming the cosmos back to himself to undo the effects of sin, sorrow, and death. And they were getting swept up into the story of the ages. And they could have no idea when it first started happening that this interruption was an introduction to something that was gonna change the world. Jesus would grow into adulthood. His followers would be there on Golgotha's hill. And what in that moment for them, for his mom, for his brothers, his friends, felt like the worst unplanned, unforeseen, unexpected interruption in all of their lives, Jesus hanging on a cross. But what seemed like an ending, they took his lifeless body down and put him in a grave. And on the first day of the week, three days later, God rolled away the stone. And the interruption of the cross became an introduction to the resurrection and life that God 
was offering to the world. And it's a testament to us that when it looks like an ending, God can make it a beginning. And when it looks like the road has ended, God can still make a way because God can be trusted. Heavenly Father, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. I just, I just want to be honest. I don't think I have that type of, I, I know I don't have that type of faith. I want that type of faith, but God, I, I'm not sure. I pray that we learn how to respond to who you are and what you said in faith, confident faith. If you're here today or you're watching and you've never trusted Christ to be Lord and Savior of your life, God sent his son into the world to save the world, to save us from sin, to save us from death. And he offers a free gift of grace because when he died, he died for your sin and mine, all of our sin. And he paid the debt. He died in our place so that we could go free, so we could be forgiven. And if you've never taken that step, I would encourage you in this moment just to pray a simple prayer, just out of your heart. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you love me, that you sent Christ to die for me. I believe the tomb is empty and I receive your gift of grace and forgiveness today. Change me. Help me to trust you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. For anybody else, you're going through a difficult time. You're in the middle of an interruption and it's just kicking your tail. You're having a hard time with it. Maybe today you just open up your hands and say, God, today I I decide you can be trusted. Right now, in this moment, I decide you can be trusted. It's not an ending, it's the beginning. You're making a way where there seems to be no way. I trust you today. Father, speak in this room, speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, and everybody said,